0: So we're going to talk today about some more strategies and just a quick review of the big picture of what we're doing at this church. The the DNA of our church that Pastor John is constantly trying to talk to us about is what I call the witness lifestyle. He's wanting us to be thinking with intentionality in the front of our mind of these 8 to 15 people Who are they, and how can I begin to get in a conversation with them? And bringing the gospel to the people in our oikos. And I like to say, based on uh, 1 Corinthians 5, that we, in our identity, are ministers of reconciliation. That all of us are ministers in that way, and we want to be building those bridges with people. And kind of the big word I had for you guys today on your cards is intentionality. It's very important to set goals for yourself. Like Chi Qi Ching has a goal if she's going to meet with her grandmother with a certain amount of, you know, I'm, I'm getting engaged once a week. When I go through my card, I have intentionality of trying to reach out to at least two or three people a week and trying to meet with at least one person a week. Whether the reaching out is I'm sending them a text message, I'm just saying, hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you today, um, or is there anything that I can pray for you for? You know, I'm doing something to let that person know, you're on my mind, you're on my, you're on my radar, I'm thinking about you, and you have some intentionality. So begin to set some goals. When you're looking at your cards, don't just fill out the card. Start thinking, how am I going to begin to get into conversations with these people? Start asking the Holy Spirit to do. start making some movements and doing some things. And a lot of times when I just send in that, what I call a check-in text of, hey, I'm just checking in with you, you know, then that will eventually turn into, hey, let's get together and have a lunch, you know, in a couple of weeks or something. So have some intentionality. Set some goals for yourself of what you're doing with these people. um, And then think about, you know, how, how am I engaging this person? Keep it, keep it current, keep track, and that sort of thing. And another thing that I do is I have an app on my phone where I keep track of my prayers for people. It's a prayer app. And I'll check in, like, every so often. Oh, the last time I prayed for this person was on such and such date. What was it that I prayed for them for? And then I'll have a record of it. And then I can refresh my memory of that. And then I'll reach back out to them in my check-in text and all how's this going for you what's what's happening so you know get some kind of intentionality and a system in place of how you're doing that you know whether that you don't have an app but you just have a tablet of paper that you're keeping track of them on or you type them on your computer or whatever that is it's a prayer app where you can track prayer requests and i have an entry in here for almost everybody in my oikos and then and then i enter the date every time i i check i think it's just called a prayer yeah, it's like prayer requests or something. It's free. It's a very low-tech solution. <laughs> so, But, you know, be creative. Think about, like, how am I going to keep track of these people? How am I going to have some intentionality? How am I going to set some goals? So I know at any given time, like, all right, I haven't checked in with this person in a while. I need to circle back to that, see what's up with them. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the question of how do people come to faith in Jesus or any other belief system. And the most important thing I want you to know today is that beliefs are like webs. They're not like marbles. If I had a whole bunch of marbles up here, okay, and they were just kind of all scattered around here, there would be nothing connecting them together. When we are inviting people into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not just simply adding another marble to their existing set of beliefs and they have all of these other beliefs we're not telling them here is another belief to add to your system that's not actually how belief beliefs work beliefs are are networked together there's things that hook them together they're much more like spider webs and so when we are talking to people in our oikos conversations we need to be careful to understand that we're not just inviting them to adopt one new belief, to a whole bunch of pre-existing beliefs. We're inviting them to come into a different network, a different web of beliefs. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. How conversion happens. When we present the gospel to a non-believer, we are inviting them to adopt uh, to adopt an entirely different worldview, not just adopt one new belief to add to all of their existing beliefs. Beliefs are very curious things. And we're going to talk about why do people believe certain things and not other things? And how do people change their minds about things? How do we respond when people give arguments against our faith? You know, we we might encounter somebody in an oikos conversation and they say, well, I'm not a Christian because. I don't believe that because. Well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me, or I don't think Jesus really existed, or I think Jesus is an embellished myth. Do we go home and we lay in our bed at night and we're worried? We think, you know, oh, maybe this is a threat to my faith. Maybe I shouldn't be a Christian anymore. No, we don't do that, right? We might think about it for maybe a few seconds, a few minutes, and then we tell ourselves something, and then we move on, right? We tell ourselves something, that makes that assertion go away, don't we? We don't lay awake at night worrying about whether God exists. Probably not. We feel upset or maybe frustrated for a few minutes that the other person doesn't see the world properly. And what we mean by properly is from our point of view. Are you with me? Yeah. Have you ever, like, even gotten in an argument with your spouse? What you're really upset with this person about is that they don't see the world from your point of view, right? Right? And this is part of your belief system, and then you kind of move on with your life. You tell yourself something, and then you move forward. This dynamic is what keeps most Christians Christian, and most unbelievers in unbelief, and most liberals liberal in the face of contrary evidence. Have you ever noticed this? When you're talking to somebody from a different point of view, you're trying to put your case forward and you're thinking, why is there a brick wall here? Why don't they change their mind? It's because beliefs are not like marbles, my friends. They are webs. They are interconnected with each other. And so what you are inviting that person into is an entirely different web of beliefs. It's an entirely different worldview system. And this is part of what keeps you a Christian, in the face of people's objections. And it's what keeps unbelievers in unbelief, in the face of evidence. It's because there's a there's a whole interconnected system of beliefs. So I want you to think about what I call mega beliefs. Mega beliefs are core beliefs. If you think of a spider web there's the center of the spider web from which all of the other pieces emanate right if our belief system has a core that's what i'm calling a mega belief it's a core belief if that core belief becomes compromised what's going to happen to the rest of the web it's going to start falling apart right but what if something compromises the outside of the web the inner part is still okay, right? The core is still solid. So we can even have some threats to our web of beliefs as long as they're on the periphery. We're okay with that. Nothing's threatening our core. But if something comes along and threatens our core belief, our mega belief, then what's going to happen to the rest of our web of beliefs? Well, this is why Christians become deconverted, right? (laughs) Right? is because something happened to that core belief. And that came under threat. And then they saw, oh, that core belief in that system seems superior to the core belief that I have in my system. So maybe I need to jump systems. I need to switch to a different mega belief. Core beliefs, we just know they're true. We just, we just know our knower that Christianity is true, right? We know these things. These are our mega beliefs. And other, what, no matter what other people say, it doesn't touch our core belief, our mega belief, because we know it's true, right? And it's the center of our beliefs, and it's the core of our emotions. See, our emotions are wrapped up in our beliefs. It's not just all about up here. We, our emotions get engaged with our beliefs. And so if somebody starts attacking our beliefs, what do we, how do we feel about that? Not happy. We, not happy. We get a little defensive sometimes, right? And we have to fight against that defensiveness because they're attacking our core belief system, our mega belief, right? And being in our mega belief is sort of what I call our happy place. You know, we just comfortably dwell there. This is what I know. I know Christianity is true. I know Jesus is real. This is my happy place of... So, of where I am and the whole outside world, it can be snowing outside, there can be a blizzard, but I don't care because I'm in my little cozy house, my, my happy place of my, my core belief system. Is, is this making any sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there can be all of these alternative perspectives outside, but they don't really touch us because we know. We know the truth. We know it's, what our core belief system is. And it's the lens through which we interpret the world. So if you remember back at the beginning of this unit, we had the video with the colorblind glasses, right? And we saw the, the jelly beans. This is just a screen capture from that video. Puts on the colorblind glasses, and boom, there's all the color for the first time that you see. This is, this is kind of like a lens. Our web of beliefs forms the lens through which we see the world. And it can even form our lens of how we see our own religion. You know, one of my um, people that I'm working with right now uh, through my prayer ministry, he has only ever related to the Lord in a very legalistic way. He thinks that he has to do all of these things to gain the Lord's favor. And I'm sitting with him in this meeting this past week, and I'm probing, like, how deep does this go? How, how much toward the core belief of who he knows the Father is does this go? And boy, it went deep. It went all the way there. His core belief about who the Heavenly Father is is that you can only gain the Father's favor if you are a good boy. You do the right things at the right time, and that's how you have relationship with him. And I'm over here inviting him to take a different lens, to get a different core belief that the heavenly Father has unconditional love for him. And he, it was a five-hour conversation of, "No, this is what I know is true," and I'm inviting him to jump into unconditional love. It's a different lens. All right. And he is so scared to go from the legalism, what if I do something wrong and then I jump into unconditional love and that's wrong and then the father is angry with me and I'm inviting him, no, this is a better way of understanding the scriptures, this is a better core belief. He's still a Christian, but he's got confused theology as a confused core belief about who the father is and I'm trying to invite him into a different lens, a different mega belief about who his heavenly father is. So when we think about beliefs, what I want you to think about is we believe things for all kinds of reasons. Some of them are rational and some of them are not rational and some of them are based on our own experience and and some of them are just based on things we make up. And so we are wanting to think about our lenses. So I'm going to play a clip right now. And this is uh, from an, by an atheist, and it's part of a series of videos where he talks about his, what he calls his deconversion from Christianity to atheism. But I thought it was a very nice explanation about this concept of the web of beliefs. And so we're going to look at this, and then we'll talk about it together.
1: as atheists, we sometimes treat the concept of God as if it has a silver bullet, as if there is just one problem with the idea of God that we can point out that will destroy it altogether as a valid concept. Even atheists who are former and deconverted Christians make this mistake, because there is often one concept about God that dealt the final blow to their belief and brought them
0: to Okay, pause it there is. a second. Oh. So he says, Atheists are looking for a silver bullet, a magic argument that will deconvert Christians, right? We are looking for the bullet going the other way, aren't we? Right? I actually have an article on the Reasons to Believe website called uh, looking for the magic bullet or something. This is like looking for unicorns, my friend. Okay? There is no magical argument that you can come across that's going to work 100% of the time that you can nail your unbelieving friend with and get them to convert to Christianity or to get them to a new web of beliefs. It's a lot, usually, but is there usually one thing that happens that gets that person like kind of at the end to convert? Yes, but that's not going to always be the same for every person. And he's saying the same thing is true for atheists. When they're trying to deconvert their Christian friends, they're always looking for this magical argument. We all do this. But this is, thinking like that is what I was talking about earlier, about beliefs are not like marbles. You can't find the magical marble that you add to somebody's pre-existing belief system and then voila, they're a Christian. Okay? All right, go ahead.
1: But this is probably, actually, an illusion. And they've probably just forgotten the earlier concepts. So, you may be surprised to hear that I hope to give the concept of God the respect it deserves. I learned a long time ago that you'll never cause someone to see your perspective unless you show them that you understand their perspective. And I want to give the concept of God its fullest and most respectful treatment showing why I stopped believing in it. In the mind of any sophisticated okay, believer, stop there. the concept of God...
0: Isn't this is what I've been telling you? Bridge building, seeing the world from their point of view, he's giving He's giving atheists the same advice I'm giving you. If you want to get into a conversation with somebody that has a different worldview than you, you're gonna have to figure out how to build a bridge, how to see the world from their point of view. This is just atheist evangelism 101. And this is really just how to talk to people in a persuasive way, if you want to get an audience with them, okay? It's the same tactics, okay?
1: In the mind of any sophisticated believer, The concept of God is a mega belief. It's a belief that's held together by many small beliefs, many small experiences that accumulate and form a a larger belief. If at any one time one of these beliefs is attacked, a believer can still, in their own mind, rely on the strength of the other beliefs. It's only when a sufficient number of these beliefs that form the mega-belief are countered that a Christian will really start to question their faith. This is called graceful degradation. It's a concept in network theory where multiple nodes in a network can be knocked down but the network as a whole can still stand up. For the purpose of continuing my story, I'll label these nodes. This is a simplified model of the concept of God, but I think that it covers a sufficient number of different subjects to make my deconversion convincing. Here's a brief overview of each of these nodes. I may not cover all of them. The first is logical arguments. These arguments could have been presented by someone whom the believer perceives as a reputable authority. I myself was convinced by the arguments of Gerald Schroeder, who wrote The Science of God. Next is prayer. Prayer provides a basis for belief in God through the perception of answered prayer. Next is morality. God is seen as the source of morality for Christians. Without God, there can be no morals. Next there is the beauty of creation, whether the universe or life itself. The complexity of our material reality is a testament to God in the eyes of Christians. Next is the Bible. The Bible is seen as the divine word of God, inspired by God. It's seen to have inherent wisdom. Next is the testimony of other Christians. Other Christians bolster our belief, both by providing an example and by providing numbers. This is also related to our own experience as Christians. We don't see how anyone could believe the way that we believe with the passion and devotion and commitment that we believe and become a non-Christian. It seems impossible. Finally, and most importantly for me, was my personal relationship with God, and my personal experiences of God. How can you come to not believe in God after feeling that you have communicated with God himself? Atheists on YouTube have covered almost all of these points individually. I'm going to show you now how all of them come together to affect the single coherent concept of God in a single person's life.
0: Okay, so can you kind of see some parallels there when you're, when you're talking to people that when you're, when, when ath- an atheist is inviting you into a conversation to undermine your beliefs, it's not going to just be one thing. But if they start working their way, as he calls graceful degradation, and he's undermining multiple nodes uh, of belief, then that begins to undermine your mega-belief, right? But isn't that really what we're trying to do as well as Christians, is we're trying to engage in graceful degradation of their system of non-belief in Jesus. And we might have to, this is what I've been telling you all along, is don't think that it's just one thing you're going to have to do. You're going to have to engage in probably a multiplicity of tools in your toolbox as you're engaging with this person. And that's part of what we need the Holy Spirit for because the Holy Spirit knows exactly what's up with with that person. So let's look at a case study here of your friendly neighborhood LDS person. Why do LDS members keep believing what they are believing despite that we all know that these beliefs do not align with reality. Why, why do they keep believing in that? Well, they experience the validity or wisdom of, of the inspiration of their holy book on a personal level. If you talk to them about that, they've had some kind of personal experience that tells them that the revelation in the Book of Mormon is true. And that is a key mega-belief for them. It is a key core belief for them. If you ask if they'll ask you, can I give you my testimony? What they're going to tell you is about their experience of coming into a belief that the Book of Mormon is a true revelation of from God and that Joseph Smith is his prophet. That is their core mega belief. They see answers to prayer. They're living in a culture that continually reinforces their faith. When their test they call it, you know, when my testimony seems under attack, they go talk to you know, what we call their small group, your small group, you know, I had a hard week. And then other people in their church reinforce their experience, reinforce their testimony. And so then, yeah, their beliefs are back on solid ground. They experience true community with others through their faith and through the rituals that they perform. Not unlike what we do. They interpret everything they see in the LDS way. We do this too. They interpret the world through their lens of their theology and their holy book and their worldview. They get answers or guidance through their living prophets that they hold in high esteem. To understand the LDS culture and religion, the one thing you must understand is their fundamental um, belief in the, the value of having living prophets, that God is still speaking to them. Today, through living prophets, they live their whole lives to gain reward in the afterlife. They do go through the temple rituals. They do good works. They pay their tithe. All of these things are to help them with their eternal reward, somewhat not unlike what we do. All of these beliefs and experiences are linked together and reinforce each other like a giant network, don't they? Like a spider web. If one element falls away, it doesn't all come tumbling down because the rest of the web takes over. And they can reinforce the web by talking to other people who are like-minded. If prayer does not work, well, you still have the living prophet if you don't see answers to your prayers. You still know the living prophet is true. If you don't like temporal rituals, that's okay. There's still the afterlife to think of. And then maybe that will motivate you to do the temple rituals. If you don't see the validity of the Book of Mormon, well, there's always community. The people in my ward are very nice. They're helpful. They helped me when my mother had cancer. They brought me meals. They've been supportive. So even though I have doubts about the Book of Mormon, this community seems to dwell in the truth and they're very nice people. Do you see how all of these beliefs and actions all reinforce each other that my mega belief is real and true? So how does this dynamic play out for us as Christians? Do you see this at all in how we do our life in the local church? And so when we are inviting people into what we're saying, a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're inviting them into a whole different system. Can you see why for most people this takes time? Because you're you're inviting them to see the world differently, to interact with the world differently, and to have a different mega belief. So when atheists come along and they present evidence against the existence of God, we don't lose sleep over that. Because our web takes over, right? We call up our Christian friends and say, oh, I just had the most annoying conversation with this atheist in the grocery store. He just couldn't see the truth, right? Because we know that we have the proper core belief. We have the proper mega belief. We comfort ourselves with the benefit, the other benefits of our faith. Even if, like, Pastor John keeps talking about, well, what if, you know... You're praying to the Lord, but the answer hasn't come yet. He's given several sermons in the last year on that theme. Well, why is he doing that? Some would say, well, he's helping you to reinforce your web in other areas. Answer prayers aren't coming through, but let's, let's reinforce that web of beliefs in other areas so that you don't lose faith. God's still there. The Bible is true. Look at creation. Okay. So how does this dynamic play out for us when we present the gospel to others? This is the point I've been making, is that this for many people is a long process. Now, sometimes you meet a guy in a casino and he's just ready. Holy Spirit had him ready. But we don't know what his journey was up until that moment where maybe he was already questioning his core belief, and that was just some low-hanging fruit. There's Laura sitting next to him, pulling the arm in the casino, and he's ready to pray the sinner's prayer, okay? But we need to be careful not to mistake that, for she just added a marble onto his belief system. We don't know what preparatory work the Holy Spirit was already doing in that situation. The Lord selects Laura the evangelist, to come along and harvest that fruit, right, in that moment, okay? So we have to understand how these things fit together into an overall narrative of what the Lord is doing in that that person's life. We are asking the person to adapt a new mega-belief and, in turn, an entirely new set of beliefs. And sometimes we even have to do this with other Christians because they haven't really thought through their web of beliefs yet, and they have some, some kind of wacky doctrine, or maybe they went to an abusive church, maybe before they, were belong, they belonged to some sort of quasi-Christian church, and you've got to work with them over time to begin to adjust and strengthen their, their web of beliefs to really come into alignment with the historic Christian faith. Another way of thinking about this is our worldview tells us what is real, that God is real. The Bible is his word. What is true is that the Bible is true, and this forms our beliefs. And then what is good tells us how to live, our, our, our values of right and wrong. And then that works itself out in our behavior, what we do. So it is a belief that marriage is between one man and one woman we get that on the basis of scripture because that is what is true and we believe what is real is that God exists the Bible is his word marriage is between one man and one woman what do we do we only engage in marriage with another man or another woman you see how all of these things build on top of one another so What this lesson is today is, in philosophy, we call this epistemology. This is the theory of how we know things. And that's really what we're talking about here. And we're just getting a very rudimentary crash crash course on the nature of beliefs or epistemology. Because this does affect us when we're in those oikos conversations. Many of us feel frustrated. Why won't this person change their mind? Well, because it's not one belief we're inviting them to change their mind about. It's many things at the core of who they are that's going to take some time. And the, really the big question is, is how do we know we have the correct mega belief? How do we know we have the right core? How do we know we have the right web of beliefs? Does this trouble you? Because there's many... See, it doesn't trouble her. She's very sure. This is, this is a great example. It, because the question is, is how do you know? Because your, your, your belief system constantly reinforces itself. At some point, you have to stand back and ask the question, how do I know that I have the right set, the right network of beliefs? Yeah, the right core coherent. belief. Is it coherent? Is a big one. The, but the, we have to, at some level, at some point in our lives, stand back and ask that question. Because that's the question that many unbelievers are asking. You, Christian, how do you know that your set of beliefs is better than mine? Because I know how my web works. I know it in my knower that my set of beliefs works for me. It brings me happiness. It, I know how it works. I know that I'm in control. I know that I can govern my own life and what you are inviting me into. I have to know on some level that your system is better than mine, explains the world better, explains the meaning of life better. They might not be able to articulate it that way, but that's really what they're doing. The, the question in the back of their mind is how do you know that your web of beliefs is better, more true, more accurate, more coherent than mine? Because I know how, why this works for me. And this is a very difficult question in the age in which we live, because we live in the crazy era of postmodernism, where Meaning is just completely subjective to whatever you want it to be. It's, but beliefs are funny things because we could theoretically all just be mutually deceived together. You know, like that one graphic said, you know, well, how could 1.2 billion people be wrong? Well, they could be. But the question is, is how do we know? There's a lot of competing systems out there. There's a lot of competing webs of belief. And each person in your oikos, on your card, has a different system of beliefs. And part of your job is to be a little bit of a detective to figure out what that is for them. And and then begin to engage in graceful degradation of their system. Because that's what they're inviting us into. In some way, they want to engage in graceful degradation of our system. Because they often think that their system is better than ours. I see this all the time with my brother. We're both gracefully engaging in, trying to engage in graceful degradation with each other's systems because we both can't be true. Both systems of belief cannot be true. We need a multifaceted approach when we witness to others. We need to have multiple tools, multiple approaches for some people that are very analytical they're going to need lots of logical evidences they're going to need evidences from creation they're going to need they're going to need some information other people that come from a more eastern point of view they're going to need some they're going to really put a lot of weight on powerful religious experiences so you have to have a multifaceted approach you have to kind of do some things and that's what i'm trying to do in this class to get you ready and you want to be what I call person-specific. This is the point I've been trying to make in this class, is just because somebody belongs to a certain group, I'm gay, or I'm a Muslim, or I'm a member of the Worldwide Church of Christ, doesn't mean that they hold to all of those beliefs. You've got to be a little bit of a detective to figure out, well, maybe he's a gay Republican, and they have their own kind of unique system. Someone who's a, more of a mainstream Muslim versus someone who's more extremist. You've got to be person-specific. I was teasing my friend, Xi Ching, this this week. I was looking for someone who's a Buddhist, and I said, pardon my stereotypes while I asked my my friendly neighborhood Chinese friend to help me find a Buddhist. (laughs) But (laughs) it was, I'm like grasping at straws here trying to find a Buddhist. And, you know, but I'm making this, that's what stereotypes are is that we think that, well, everyone in this bucket is this way. But when we're doing evangelism, we want to be a little more person-specific. And we want to find out that person's key hindrances to believe in Jesus. That's really the, the conversation. That's what I was advising you, Steve, is find out, you know, well, why did you go down this other path? What is your understanding of historic Christianity? You know, what are some of the obstacles that you see to you going from here to there? And just being curious, just asking. Now, I actually think this Bible is God's word. Mega-belief is actually the wrong mega-belief for the Christian. I actually, if I have time this spring, I'll do a talk on what I think actually this core belief ought to be. I think this is actually the wrong core belief, but this is what many atheists will tell you that they thought was the core belief of when they were a Christian. And so if they're... if their confidence in the accuracy of the Bible gets undermined, then that is a core thing that can begin to degrade their faith. Let's talk for a minute, we're going to wrap it up here, about the difference between arguments and persuasion. I get this question a lot. There is a wide difference between giving an argument or a reason or an evidence for something and persuading somebody. And if you do not understand the difference between these two things, you will be frustrated. Okay. <laughs> okay, so arguments is a set of claims to make a case. It involves premises. It involves a conclusion. Okay, so it is giving logical arguments. All right. And a premise is a claim given as evidence or, or a reason for accepting a conclusion. This is a philosophical idea. So when we're engaging in, at my work in what we call apologetics or making a legal case for the defense of the faith, this is an argument. But arguments are not the same as persuasion. Persuasion. Few people accept or reject Christianity based purely on rational factors. You must know this. Some do. Now, some will tell us You don't need apologetics because nobody comes to faith through reason. That's not true. My ministry is a testimony to tens of thousands of people who have come to faith through reason, through evidences, through arguments, through case making, especially in the West. But many people do not have religious beliefs or even other beliefs based on rational factors. If you've ever been in an argument with your spouse, you've probably had the idea what they're believing is not rational, right? And so much of the argument is your case-making, how your position is a superior understanding of the situation. And this is why we argue. Okay, So we don't believe things, though, often based on purely rational factors. All, after all, human beings are far from purely rational creatures. We're also emotional creatures, right? We're religious creatures. We have many facets to us. A person's coming to faith in Christ is never solely the, the result of an intellectual decision. The Holy Spirit has to get involved and change their mind. Evidences can help lead them that down that path. Reasons can help get them there, but... What flips that person ultimately is the Holy Spirit and helps get them into that new worldview. So we don't want to think of this in a purely natural way. People adopt beliefs about reality and truth based on various factors, some rational, some non-rational. Some of us have uh, non-rational reasons why we hold to religion. We're ignorant, we're biased, we're acting in our own self-interest, We're fearful. We're prideful. We believe many things, sometimes for rational reasons, sometimes for non-rational reasons. Beliefs are curious things. And with people, they are complicated. People are not mathematical formulas. (laughs) Right? If they were, I could do a few things differently in my life. And so what we're trying to do is uncover persuasion blockers. What is keeping this person from being persuaded. What is the obstacle for them? So differentiate between persuasion and arguments. People like to think of themselves as neutral, and it, should be, and it should be objective. Objective in our ability to weigh arguments, but we're not. We're not objective, we're biased. We act in our own self-interest. Sometimes we're blind, sometimes we're deceived. And just because a person is not persuaded by an argument doesn't mean that the argument is somehow defective. You can have a very sound argument, but it doesn't persuade them. Why doesn't it persuade them? Well, that's for you, dear detective friend, to find out. Okay? So understand the difference between arguments and persuasion. They are not the same thing. And it doesn't mean your argument is bad. It might be bad. <laughs> you might want to check on the argument. But uh, it doesn't necessarily mean the argument is bad just because it, someone is not persuaded. Persuasion is person-relative, as I like to call it. One, one argument that's very persuasive for some, one person might not be persuasive for someone else. It's person-relative. No single argument will persuade everyone. That's what we were talking about earlier, about the magic bullet arguments and simply because some questions are hotly contested does not mean that all positions on them are equally valid or and none are superior these are the difficulties of trying to give logic and reasons so why do people come to faith well it's complicated it's like a relationship it's complicated it's there's there's a lot of factors There needs to be a direct presentation of the gospel. We need to have an intervention of the Holy Spirit. We need to have a a movement of the person's free will to think differently. It's at least those three things, probably many more. So when you're in your oikos conversations, be patient. Listen to the Holy Spirit and how he guides you and understand that for many people, you're inviting them into a very... Um, kind of complicated discussion of what they're believing is real and true about the world, and they might not even know it. They're not, they, they haven't had the benefit of having Christa's crash course on epistemology. You're, you're way ahead of the game now. You know what's going on under the hood, right? Was this helpful uh, in just thinking these things through? to understand. Hopefully it will cut down on some of your frustration. So don't lose hope with people when you're talking to them just because they don't come to faith right away. Don't lose hope with them. Stay in it with them. Keep listening to the Holy Spirit because he can work wonders on those webs and breaking them down and breaking through. Yeah, Ginger. If it, if you say the direct presentation of the gospel, why is the Bible, the Bible? Why is? not Isn't. isn't. Yeah, so I actually think that those are two slightly different things. And i got one minute here. So uh, I would say, and I've said this before in this class, that I actually think the center of Christianity is the resurrection. It's the historical case for the resurrection. And it's the historical case for Christianity is really what's at the core. Now, the Bible is the outworking of that. But, like, for me, there's, I don't, maybe I'm the only one, but there's a lot of parts of the Bible I don't understand. You know, I, I, I don't really understand some sections. Yeah, and, and there's, there's some sections that I can't really reconcile. I struggle with them. But if I know that my faith is sure on the resurrection, because, see, the resurrection changes everything. It means that Jesus has power over death. And that there's hope for, for my own resurrection. There's hope for forgiveness of my sins. There's hope for eternal life. See, everything hinges on the resurrection. I actually think that that is the, the core mega belief. So even when things are difficult for me, and there's parts of scripture I don't understand, I come back to the resurrection. I come to that first. And I think about the truthfulness. I meditate on the, on the resurrection. So it's a little slightly different. Yeah, the scripture is the outworking of that, but I would say the core ought to be the historicity of Jesus and the claims and miracles that he made, and demonstrating, as we've been talking in class, the proclamation and the demonstration of the kingdom of God uh, through the resurrection in particular. Uh, and I just get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it says it's of first importance. Is the resurrection okay? Let's uh, let's pray, Father. Thank you for what you do in our lives, how you partner with us to bring people to faith. I, for one, do not understand how this operates, but this is the system that you have chosen. You have chosen to deputize with power and authority sinful humans that you have redeemed and empowered through your Holy Spirit to partner with you to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's a wonderful privilege. Help us to never take it for granted. Help us to see the people in our oikos and even just the people that we encounter in our everyday life through the lens of the Father. That we would see them with the love that the Father has for them. Not in their brokenness, not in their current situation, but in their true destiny of how the Father sees them that we may enter into compassion for them and with them and speak your love and truth and grace and power into their life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.